0: This has gotten almost 60 million views on YouTube, so I'm assuming most of you have seen this, but just in case, I want you to watch it. We cross our fingers with all things technical, so we'll just see how it goes, and then I'll come back and share a bit. Go ahead, Greg. So that would be my nightmare. (laughs) I'd be the uppercut guy, going in like that. So why is that popular? Like I said, 60 million views. To give you a comparison, um, President Obama's inauguration, which many historians will tell you is one of the most significant events in our generation, has gotten about 4.6 million views. A ton of people have watched this. Many have watched it multiple times. And I was thinking, what, why is that? And I think what it is, you have, you have this iconic moment, uh, a, wom- uh, a, a bride walking down the aisle, and it's done in such an unexpected way. I've done a couple of weddings and never. We, one girl walked into the Top Gun theme song. That's as far outside of the <laughs> thing. And she was marrying a pilot, so it worked out fine. But, you know, I, it's not what this moment, I'm not a woman from what I understand, girls dream about this and the, the aisle and the church and the dress and the flowers and who's going to be in it and how they're going to walk down and the music and I don't know if any of y'all was that in your mind? That that's what you were going to do? You know, I, again, at these wedding rehearsals, we spend twice as much time working on walking down the aisle as we do actually practicing the whole, you're going to spend the rest of your life with this person element of the service. It's a It's this again, this iconic moment for a lot of people, and it comes in an unexpected way, and it grabs our attention. Um, Advent's so four weeks leading up to Christmas, and during Advent, if you remember, we focused on preparing for Jesus to come. Uh, those of you who were here the first Sunday, Sunday—that was the last Sunday, and right after Thanksgiving, uh, we wrote uh, gift tags, um, and we said, this is the area of my life where I want to see God work. This is what I want God to give me for Christmas. You wrote, some of you wrote, I want a husband, I want a wife, I want a kid, I want to be reconciled in this relationship, I want my heart to change in this area, I want financial peace, I want to promote whatever it was. You you wrote those cards, and I hope God has worked in that situation, maybe he has, maybe he hasn't, but we talked about preparing for God to come, and for 400 years, at least, the Jewish people are preparing for this Messiah. From the time Malachi ends to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they begin that 400 years, they're getting ready. There's this group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees who come to power during that gap. And they say, we're going to follow the rules better than anyone has ever followed the rules in the history of Israel. We're not going to have our city destroyed again. We're not going to have our temple destroyed again. We're not going to get kicked out of our country again. God wants people of the law and we are going to be people of of the law. And so they did that. We've talked about this before. There's the, the, All the laws in the Old Testament, they built a fence around it. They put all these other rules and regulations around God's law to make sure if you don't break this one out here, then there's no way you're going to break this one in here. Don't boil a kid in his mother's milk, whatever in the world that means. That's in the book in Leviticus. So what we say is you have a separate set of dishes, one for meat. And one for dairy. That way, there's no way those things are ever that can never happen. You can't break it. You see that they did. So the Pharisees come to power again, anticipating, preparing. We're going to get ready for the Messiah to come by becoming a religiously, ritually pure society. You have prophecies throughout the Old Testament. People knew these. That this child's going to be born in Bethlehem. So the again, you have the people who are looking. They're expecting. They're anticipating. They're waiting. People like Simeon in Luke two. A righteous and devout man, and got in waiting on the Bible says the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And he sees Jesus at eight days old, and he says, I can die in peace now. I've seen him. Anna, a widow, 84 years, every day in the temple, worshiping, praying, fasting for the Messiah to come. And she sees Jesus, and the Bible says she goes and tells everybody who was looking for the Messiah about him. So you have people who are waiting. You have These prophecies that are kind of seeding the ground. You have this group, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are constantly calling people to obey the law to prepare for the Messiah to come. And then you have Christmas, the fulfillment of all of this, the hundreds of years in between Malachi and the New Testament, the thousands of years that have preceded in Jewish history, all of this. And then you have Christmas, two teenagers in a stable in the middle of the night in an insignificant town outside of Jerusalem, and the only people we know who heard anything about it were a handful of shepherds. It doesn't, it doesn't work for a lot of us. If Barack Obama, if the President of the United States were to come to Marietta, not Air Force One, that's a whole different world, but if he were to drive, he and his 45-car motorcade, he shows up in a $300,000 custom-made limo called The Beast which we don't know anything about, because it's all top secret. It's got five inches of armor plating all the way around. The windows are so thick, that it has a special interior lighting system, because sunlight won't penetrate. The wheels, if you shoot them, they run flat. They have one run, run flat tires. The gas tank can't leak. It can't be exploded. I don't know how you do that, but they have an unexplodable gas tank. The driver's got a shotgun. The front of the car has these two little holes in it that'll emit tear gas if people get too close. And there's a blood bank in the trunk full of his blood type. If he comes, you're going to know. They close down roads, they make you get off the interstate. He's got 45 cars. That's not even counting the local and state police. That's, that's an entrance. It's on the news, there's advance teams, there's PR, there's all of that. The son of God comes and nobody knows except two teenagers and a handful of shepherds. This moment that you've been, we've been, they've been waiting for comes, and most people miss it. It comes in an unexpected way. Not necessarily in a way that draws our attention. In a way that it's easy to overlook. Before Advent, we were going through Mark a chunk at a time. Mark doesn't have a birth story. There's no story of how Jesus was born in Mark. It begins straight out with what Jesus did. He's baptized by John. He's uh, he's baptized, excuse me, by John, he goes into the wilderness, he's tempted, then he begins ministry in um, Capernaum, and we've looked at some of those stories, and there's a thread that runs through all of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and it's Jesus' introduction really to the religious leaders of his time, and he is confounding their expectations, and they get progressively more frustrated with him from each story. I'm going to read you a, a section from each of these stories that will be up on the screen, you can follow me if you can, or you can just close your eyes. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, we've talked about this story, these four men who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, this idea, we've got this guy, who's, he's done some miracles in this town, he's healed some people, he's taught in the synagogue, and people have said to him, Wow, he he teaches with authority. This is not what we're used to hearing. But now he says he forgives sins. You can't do that. The religious leaders, the Pharisees are right. It's blasphemy unless he's the son of God. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Yeah, that's true. I can't forgive Warren for something that Amy does to him. I can't forgive Amy for something she does to Warren. I don't have that right. I'm not the offended party. So how in the world can someone stand in for God, the offended party, and say... Son, your sins are forgiven. We've we've talked about this before. For this guy to be paralyzed, the conventional wisdom is he messed up huge, and God is punishing him. He's being judged for something that he did, and so that's why he's paralyzed. And for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, he's standing in the place of God. You don't do that. This is his response. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Look down the next story. Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi to follow him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors for a Jew, they're at the bottom of the social barrel. If you became a tax collector, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. You and your whole family. You were a collaborator with a pagan, oppressive empire. They didn't want anything to do with you. And this word, your Bible might have sinners in quotes. The Pharisees were using that as a technical term. It was outcasts. Everyone who disagreed with their interpretation of the law, they just lumped all those people into the category of sinners. So said, we don't want anything... To do with them, what they're saying to Jesus, if you're this holy man, then what in the world are you doing around these unholy people? Everybody knows uncleanness is contagious. You touch a dead body, then you're unclean as well. So for you to be eating with this kind of people, it means you're not holy. Don't you realize that they're going to, their filth is going to rub off on you. Not expected. Jesus' response. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Next verse. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? Again, questions about what he's doing. John's disciples, John at this point had been beheaded, most likely his disciples, they could have been fasting because they were mourning, most likely it's because they were fasting to show how sorry they were for the sins that they had committed, saying kind of to God, see this is is how upset we are about our sinfulness, please come And rescue us. The Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday. They did it to show their own personal holiness. And they also did it to kind of show, see, we're separate from the rest of these guys. We're consecrated um, from everyone else. Probably a little self-righteous in there, but some of it's fine. It's whatever. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. So they come to Jesus and they're saying, how come your guys aren't doing what all of these other religious people are doing? The Pharisees, there are religious leaders, they fast." John, he's this prophet, we know the type of ministry he had, his guys are fasting, how come yours aren't? Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Next story. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So, honoring the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Many Pharisees saw it as the most important commandment for everyone to keep. They actually had 39 activities that they forbade on the Sabbath. And there are all these regulations that came with them. Number three was reaping, picking heads of grain. That's reaping. And so they're saying, you're a lawbreaker. You're, you're saying you're this holy man. You're saying that people's sins are forgiven. We've seen you heal people. We, we get all that. But you're breaking the rules. How does that, that doesn't work for them. It doesn't piece together. How can you say you're sent from God, or you're some type of messenger from God, or you're the son of man, how can you say those things, and yet you're doing what we know to be incorrect. You're breaking the rules. And then the last story in Mark 3, and I think Jesus at this point to me, looks like he's picking a fight. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he finds a guy who's got a shriveled hand, and he puts him right here in the middle. And he says, what should I do with them? Is it okay for me to do good to this guy? And of course, nobody says anything. What are you going to say? If you say yes, then you're saying break the law. If you're saying no, then you don't have a heart. So what do you, nobody says anything. He gets angry at the Pharisees. And he heals the guy. And in Mark 3, 6, it says they were so frustrated. They were so angry at him. They conspired with this group of people called the Herodians. That day, they conspired to kill Jesus. You see, he confounded their expectations in such a way that they never got it. And it led to them killing the one that they had been waiting for. This is Jesus' explanation for all of this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. The specifics aren't important for us. We know Jesus forgives sins. That's why we're here. We know Jesus calls the unrighteous to him. We know he welcomes sinners. Uh, Romans 5 says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. We get that. He came to reconcile us to God. Again, that's why most of us, many of us, are in this room. We get that we're not saved because of how religiously pure we are. We don't have to keep the law or by how sorry we are for our sins. We don't have to weep and mourn and wail and fast. We're saved by grace. We, get, we know that. None of that is news to us. The big picture, if we can step back for us, and this is what I want for you individually, this is what I want for your family, this is what I want for our church, for 2011. I don't want us to miss him coming because he comes in a way that we didn't expect. It happens all the time. We look at the wrapping paper and we miss the present inside because it's not wrapped the way we thought it should be. Does it have to have Christmas wrapping paper on it? Can it come in a newspaper? Can it come in that brown, thick Nasty Can it still be a good gift if it comes like that? For many of us, the answer is no, because we don't see it. It didn't come packaged the way we wanted. I said I want a husband, and that means a white horse and a halo of sunlight from behind and music playing in the background. I said reconciliation. That means they admit they were wrong and tell me I was right doesn't work that way a lot of times. He comes in ways that we don't expect, and we miss him, just like these guys missed him. If you read through Mark from 2.1 to 3.6, the Pharisees start, and they're fine. It's progressively over these five instances that it gets bad, and by the end, they're enemies of God. But at the beginning, they're asking an honest question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a great question. The answer is nobody. They're asking the right question. But because Jesus doesn't conform to their expectations, to their understanding of who the Messiah should be, rather than stepping back and saying, I wonder if my expectations are wrong. I wonder if my understanding is wrong. If I look at the heart of what he's doing, it certainly looks like the heart of what God would do. The package is different. I wasn't expecting this. I was expecting a guy on a white horse with a sword and an army who was going to take over, who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, not this traveling, wonder-working teacher. But if I look at the fruit, it looks a whole lot like something God would do. But rather than doing that, rather than pulling their expectations out and laying them on the table and saying maybe they're wrong, they just killed him because he didn't meet them. We don't kill him. We just ignore him, neglect him, miss him. Because he says things in a way that we don't get. Or he moves in situations that we don't see. And that's, that's what I want for us for this year is to get it. To have eyes to see and ears to hear. If God hasn't worked in that situation that you wrote down on the card, I don't want you to lose hope. That's not a Christmas thing. It's a life thing. Psalm, I think it's 36. He wants to give us the desires of our heart. We don't want to let go of that stuff. My encouragement is that we don't get so focused on the wrapping that we miss the present. Jesus, when he was trying to say to these guys, "Is I'm doing something different here. You have a wine skin. You have a way of looking at things. The wine, what I'm doing, my activity, it won't fit in there. It'll explode it. If you put new wine into old wineskins with a new wine, ferments, it'll explode, it'll bust the skin. You've lost the skin and you've lost the wine. You've lost everything. So let's put new wine into new wine skins. Not because new is better than old, but because it's inappropriate to put new and old together. Same thing with the cloth. You don't put a new patch on an old pair of clothes because when it shrinks, it's going to make the tear worse. You've lost everything. You've lost your patch and you've lost your jeans. It's not, again, that new is better than old. It's that it needs to be appropriate. Old and old, because they've all—they both already shrunk. That's what he's saying. And that's what I think he wants to communicate to us. Oswald Chambers says, don't make a principle out of your experience. Let God be as unique or original with your friends, with others, as he is with you. And I would extend that and say, let God be as unique or as original or as creative with you today as he was yesterday. This is not necessarily biblically sound, but it's the way I tend to operate on this stuff. If I can figure it out, then I assume that's not the Lord. If I've seen Him work in, a, in one way in the past, I just figure, you know what, that's probably not going to be the way He works again, because then I'm looking for it, and I'm trying to make that happen. Again, that's not 100%, but that that's a picture to me of of what God tries to do with us. He's infinitely creative. He's got more than three tricks. And so He'll work in different ways. And we need to have the depth of relationship with him that we recognize his fingerprints even when we don't recognize the package. You see what I'm saying? Most people missed Jesus. This is Matthew uh, 24, 27. As lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when Jesus is talking about his second coming, you read about that in Revelation 19, the white horse and the sword coming out of the mouth and all of that stuff. He's saying nobody is going to, everybody's going to see, no one is going to miss that. As you can see, lightning all the way across the sky, everyone is going to see me come back. Most people missed the first coming. And the thing for us is we live much more in this kind of first coming than second coming. Occasionally you'll get an earthquake, you'll get lightning, you'll get a hurricane, something that's obviously God. Oftentimes, that's not the case. It's two teenagers in the dark in a small town. Could be natural, could be supernatural, without a whole lot of fanfare. It'd be easier if there was a 45-car motorcade. That's not what we get most of the time. We've already mentioned the religious leaders missed, those who were most qualified, people who had entire sections of the Old Testament memorized who knew the prophecies about the Messiah, the ones who should have seen him first. They missed him. They rejected him almost in total. They rejected him. The nation of Israel, this, these people who he was, th- these were his people. He was sent first to rescue, to save, to redeem them. If you start in Genesis 12 and read through Malachi 4, that entire chunk, almost your whole Old Testament minus 11 chapters, is God preparing a people for the Messiah. He calls Abram, makes him Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. Trace it through Isaac and Jacob. Trace it through with Joseph and Moses and David. If you trace through all of that, all of that is God saying, I'm getting you ready to save you. Huge problems in Genesis 3. I'm trying to fix that. So we have Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve fall. Sin enters the world. Genesis 12 through Malachi 4 is God saying to this particular people, I'm forming you. I've called you out to be a nation so that I can save you thousands of years. They missed it. Listen to this, Luke 19. This is Jesus entering Jerusalem on the last week of his life. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on the day, on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. You hear that word of judgment. This whole thing, Jerusalem, it's gone. The center of the Jewish nation. Historically, religiously, politically, militarily, everything. It's going to be wiped out. How come? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Because you missed it. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for your family. I don't want that for our church. I don't want our lives to be wrecked. Because we've missed God coming to us. We're saying over here, God, work in this situation. Work in this circumstance. And he's saying, I already have. And you missed it. I don't, I don't want that for us. We need to see the nation miss it. His family, his hometown, the people who should have known him best, they missed him. Mark 3.21 Jesus is in a house, he's teaching, his family's probably 30 miles away, they've heard everything that's happened in Capernaum, these things that he's saying about forgiving sins, and about they know that he's healed people, and that he's delivered people from demons, and that all of this news they hear and they go to him. And Mark 3.21 says this, when his family heard about all of this stuff, they went to take charge of him. They said he's out of his mind, he's crazy, he's a lunatic, he's insane. His own family doesn't get it. In Mark 6, he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown. He's teaching in the synagogue, and they're amazed. They say, wow, this guy's teaching with authority. And then in verse 3, everything turns. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? What they're saying is, doesn't he know who he is? They took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. He couldn't do much there. They, did, they missed him. They were basing what they were seeing then in Mark 6 based on what they'd seen when he was 12 and 16 and 25. Do any of you have that problem? Living in the past. Maybe people judge you based on who you were in high school and you're not that person anymore, for good or bad. We do the same thing with God sometimes. This is the one that I think is the most applicable for us. The people who received his miracles, I don't know a better word than received, who experienced his miracles firsthand, most of them missed it. This is Acts 115. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. 120. We know for certain he fed 5,000 men at one point and 4,000 at another point. Even throw in some overlap among those crowds, but if you add in women, there had to be 12,000 people who literally... Ate a miracle. Ate it. We say, God, just do something undeniable, something irrefutable that we'll know is you. How about eating a miracle? His retention rate is 1%. Of the 12,000 who ate the miracle, there's 120 in the upper room. That's awful. That doesn't get you brought back as a head coach. But they missed it. The crowds missed it. I don't know who made up the 120. If you go through and count the number of people whose eyes he opened and the people whose kids he raised from the dead, and the retention rate is poor. Even people who physically experienced his power and his love, they still didn't understand. They missed the heart of who he was. And Of course, you have the disciples. They don't get it till after the resurrection. People who spent three, his hand-picked group. His guys, 12 guys, and even the three within that 12, Peter, James, and John, who's had special instruction and special time with him. He gets arrested, everybody bails but Peter, and he denies him three times in the span of a few hours. The the rule there, when I read, is most people miss it. He comes in a way that folks don't expect. God Answered the prayers that they'd been praying. Save us, save us, save us, redeem us, get us out of this situation, make everything. He answered it. He just didn't answer it in the way they thought he should. And so they killed him. They missed the time of their coming. So, what about for us? How do we avoid that? How do we not miss it? How do we see him when he comes? How do we recognize his voice? when he speaks a few things. One, you do need to expect him to come to you, but don't box him in. You want to expect the present, but you don't want to worry about the wrapping paper. So whatever you wrote on that card, whatever situation you're saying, God, I want to see you work here, expect him in that situation to do something. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom, and everything you need will be added to you. In Matthew 7, Jesus says... Uh, you being evil, you dads, y'all are evil, and you still give good gifts to your son. How much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask? That's a guarantee there. There's a promise. He's going to give you what you need. He's going to give us good gifts. Jeremiah, I think it's thirty-three-three says, Call to the Lord and He will answer you and tell you things that are unsearchable, things you did not know. That's a promise. You need to know something. Ask Him for it. But you don't, I don't, we don't want to get wrapped up In the packaging, just off the top of my head, you can probably think of others. Ways that God's spoken to people, particularly in the Old Testament. You have angelic visitations, like with Gideon. You have dreams. I've been a Christian since I was 12. I'm almost 36, 24 years. I probably had three dreams in my life that I could say have anything to do with God. Never seen an angel. Visions, that's like a dream, but you're awake. Never had one of those. He speaks through a donkey at one point. Never happened for me. That's why we don't have pets. It doesn't work. Speaks through prophets, even one who's a pagan. Through a burning bush. Think of Moses, the burning bush deal. I think it's in Exodus 3. God's calling Moses to deliver his people from slavery. And so there's a bush that's on fire and doesn't burn. And Moses, of course, interesting phenomenon, walks over there. And a voice comes out of the bush. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And here's what I want you to do. Can you imagine if every time Moses needed to hear God, he went back to that bush? Then our Bible ends at Exodus 3. He never spoke again through a burning bush. What if he went over there and he set the thing on fire? Let's see. Maybe it'll work. You can't get wrapped up in the packaging. You want to grab on to, yes, he wants to lead you, Moses. You can ask him for direction. one point, he speaks through his father-in-law, if you can imagine. Through your in-laws telling you, this is what you need to hear. You can grab onto that. He wants to speak to us. He wants to work in our situations, but we can't box him in. God, it's got to be this way. And all of us have fantasies. We all have dreams. We all, these situations where we want to work, the reason we want him to work is because the situations are bad. We want them to change. And so naturally, all of us have thought, we've daydreamed about how that situation could be different. We've heard stories of how God's worked in other people's lives. You maybe have read stuff in here. And so you think, hey, this is what it's going to look like for me. And again, God is infinitely creative. You can hold him to his promises, absolutely. You can't hold him to how he fulfills them. That's up to him. We don't want to get confused with the packaging. So yes, we want to expect him to come, but no. We don't want to box him in in terms of what that looks like next. We want to know him well enough to, to recognize his fingerprints, to recognize his voice or his activity. This has much more to do with a heart thing than anything else. It's knowing him well enough, knowing his character well enough, that when he works, even if it's kind of in disguise, you recognize him. Even if it's not what you were expecting, you still it has that ring of authenticity it. And you say, you know what, that's, that's not what I was looking for, but it's still him. It's not, we don't get that through religious exercises. We get that from a relationship. Some of you have been reading your Bible for 50 years. You've got to memorize, you've gone on mission trips, you've been a small group leader, you've taught Sunday school, you've done it all. That's fantastic. But the question is, do you know the heart of God? Can you recognize him? If he comes in disguise, so to speak, that's it for all of us. We were in South Georgia last week visiting my sis- my wife's family. She's not my sister; she's my wife. We were visiting, uh, although in South Georgia, sometimes I guess you could have. Um, so we were visiting Misty's family in Blakely, and there there aren't restaurants really in Blakely. And so we have a there's a couple that we go out with, and we went to Eufala, Alabama, which has one restaurant, which is one more than Blakely has. So we're driving to you follow to go to this restaurant, and we're driving down the road, and, and the guy's name is Harris. He's my friend. He was kind of nervous about telling me, I want to tell you something. He was a little nervous about it, and we drive past this street sign that's 133. We're on highway or state route or whatever, 133, and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you, and so he proceeds to tell me the story, and this guy, he is, his feet are on the ground. He's not super spiritual. He loves the Lord. He's the United Methodist Youth Pastor at First Methodist in Blakely. He owns the feed and seed down there he teaches elementary school science i mean he's he's here he's not he doesn't live up here so i say that to say this so he's telling me the story and he says the weirdest thing happened a couple of years ago he said i started seeing this number 33 everywhere at the most random times and after that i felt like god would direct me in some way or another either i'd have a conversation with somebody that i could tell was something god wanted to happen or i was looking for information and direction, I would see number 33, and then pretty soon after that, I would get some information, I would get some direction that helped me make the decision. And he told me probably 10 in the span of about 12 or 15 minutes, 10 separate stories. One of them was, see, and said, some of it's small, like, I don't know if I should tell you this, and I feel like it makes me look silly, and then we drive past state sign 133, and all right, I need to tell you this story. And I said, well, how many times has this happened? I said, easy, 100, over 100 times in the past year or two. And I said, what, What do you think that is? And he said, I think it's God's way of getting my, it's a signal flag. Hey, Harris, pay attention. I'm about to speak to you, or I'm about to do something in your life, or you need to be ready for something, for me to move you in a particular direction. He had, like, they had a secret signal, him and the Lord. For me, it's when I can't sleep. That's how I know God wants to say something to me. On Thursday night, we came back from Blakely on Thursday, I was dead tired. I almost fell asleep in the car. I broke down and bought a Mountain Dew to stay awake. So I I get home, and I'm wiped out. I go to bed at 10.30, and I'm looking, and it's still 12, and so I get up, and I read, and I fall asleep at 1.30. I I didn't ask the Lord anything about it. So the next night, it was New Year's Eve, and so we go to bed at midnight 01, and I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I'd slept about four hours the night before, and it's 4.30 four thirty in the morning and I'm wide awake, and so this time I got it, and I go up front and I sit on the couch and pull out my journal and say all right what's what's the thing here And God shows me something in my heart. this needs to change. you do this, and you need to stop doing this that That's my secret signal that's my warning flag, and you might have something like that, and my encouragement is to you is to recognize that for some of you it's a this might come as a surprise to you I'm much more of a thinker than a feeler, so for me. It's, it's here. It's when I have thoughts that I can't get out of my head or when I can't sleep. It's, that's how God gets my attention. Some of you are feelers, and it's different. It's, it's here. You get this kind of nervous, uh, it's not anxious in the sense of worrying, but it's unsettled feeling right down here in the pit of your stomach, and that's, that's God waving the flags. Hey, I need to say something to you. Hey, you need to pay attention. Maybe you have a number like Harris does. That would be great for me. I don't have that. There's some, maybe that you have something like that. And I want to say this, and I, would, I said this to Harris, and I say it to, about myself. The reason me and God have a secret signal of insomnia is because I don't pay attention very well. If I was alert, I wouldn't need to be woken up at 4.30 in the morning. I'd get it. And I say that in terms of encouragement. God will condescend to your weakness. Just like he does for the rest of us. He's not saying jump higher, jump higher, jump higher. I'm talking, you're not listening. If you're trying, God, I want to hear you. God, I want to see you. He'll make it plain. John ten four is a promise. My sheep know my voice. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know the voice of God. And you don't need to doubt that anymore. So Stop. Just grab on to what you think he's saying. And that's the last part. Respond to what you believe is him speaking or working in your life. One person in the world knew for certain that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that's Mary. Everybody else had to take it on faith. It was her word or it was, for Joseph it was an angel that appeared. Nobody else knew for certain except her. We want certainty. We want that from Mary. We don't get it. Very much of the time. We want incontrovertible, irrefutable, undeniable. God doesn't give us that most of the time. He gives us just enough to say yes, but not so much that we can't say no. He wants us to accept him, but he doesn't show enough that we cannot reject him. He's looking for choice. He's looking for love, loving response from us. We're saved by faith. Faith always entails, we're saved by grace, excuse me, through faith, and that always entails risk. So I want to encourage you with this. When you feel like he's said something to you, when you feel like he's moved, and whether it's that situation you're thinking about or some other situation, respond to him. As long if you believe in your heart, this is God. We've said before, obedience in the kingdom of God is success. Period. That's your job and that's my job. It's just to obey. Results are somebody else's business, not ours. So if you obey and you're wrong, it wasn't the Lord, you still win. Because obedience is success. He'll handle the results. If you messed up, it's not a big deal. He can fix it. He's great at that. Romans 8.28. He'll fix all of that stuff. Just like you don't yell at a little kid who's trying to learn how to walk, who stumbles. He's fine with that. Just take a step. Don't confuse the package with the gift. Give him freedom. Expect him to move. Don't box him in on what it looks like. Get to know him well enough that you recognize his fingerprints in a situation, even if he's coming, quote unquote, in disguise. Pay attention. If you have a secret signal, that's great. If you don't, ask him. Give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear. I want to know when you're active in my life. I guarantee it's more than you recognize, it's more than I recognize. He's not lazy. He's always working. There's things he wants to accomplish. And he has a deadline. And it's when his son comes back. So he's, he's working. And when you see something and you think, man, that's it. That has the ring of truth to it. I'm not positive. But I think that's the Lord. Then grab it and go. The worst thing that happens is you were wrong. And that's not the worst thing. The worst thing that can happen is that we miss it because we weren't paying attention. Let's pray.